Moses can do none else than cast himself before the Lord in prayer. That's where we left him off in chapter 5. Things hadn't gone well when he went in before Pharaoh with that request. In fact, quite the opposite. He's at a low point. He could say, have said like a staff of old, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Things outwardly seemed to be going from bad to worse. More burdens were placed upon the people of Israel. It seemed that they had now turned their backs on Moses and Aaron as their leaders. Moses is at the place where he's questioning the call of God that he would be the emancipator of the Israelite people. But in his despair, he was to learn that though it seems that everyone and every circumstance was against him, that God hadn't forsook him. And you might say, well, where do we see that? We see it at the very first word of the next chapter. For if you pass over the chapter division and you find him in prayer, he's bringing the, the need before the Lord. The first word then that meets your, your eyes is the word then. Then the Lord said unto Moses. You see, men and women, it was then that the Lord had a message for him. It was then that God was to answer his prayer. It was then that he was to understand that he was on the very cusp of being able to see the power of God demonstrated in a most miraculous and marvelous manner. God had not changed. And although Moses might have been weak, yet God's strength, his strength had not diminished. Commentator F.B. Meyer commenting on this said this, Out of the whole story there comes to us this lesson. We must never suppose that the difficulties which confront us indicate that we're not on God's path and doing His work. The contrary is generally the case. If we're willing to walk with God, He will test the sincerity and the temper of our soul. He will bring us into a large room and give us the very thing in which we have been taught to set our hearts. And dear people, that's what Moses was about to learn at this very juncture. His spirit would be uplifted and he was going to keep going in the work that God had called him to despite the circumstances and despite what had happened when he stood before Pharaoh. And that's why I want us to come and consider the lesson this morning. The need to persevere even amidst the troubles and the discouragements of life's pathway. The need to persevere. I want you to note with me, first of all, the encouragement. God knows how to encourage His people. He knows exactly what we need. Just as He did, you remember, when Jacob was to leave home on his way to Laban, God met with him at Bethel. And God gave him the very promises that he needed. And so it was with Moses at this very instance as well. That encouragement would come because of the person of God. And Pharaoh would soon be aware of who he was dealing with. God was still God. The one who had revealed himself unto Moses and unto Isaac and unto Jacob, as you see from verse 3, was still God. Let me read those verses. God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. 
And I appeared unto Abram, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. I am the Lord. You see verse 2, the capitals. Lord is in capitals. That means it's the name Jehovah. I am Jehovah. Remember, that was the name by which God had revealed himself unto Moses as he stood before the burning bush. And what God was stating was that while the patriarchs knew God by various names, God Almighty Adonai, yet the name of Jehovah wasn't prominent. Now the old liberal comes to verse 3 of that passage and he tries to draw contradictions out. Because Jehovah is mentioned, for example, in the book of Genesis. But there's no contradictions in God's word. And what God is saying was that while I was known by my other names and the name of Jehovah, yet the Jehovah name wasn't prominent. But from here on in it will be. And the name Jehovah, as it is with those other names, indicates the character of the person in the Bible times. It underscores the greatness of God, His power, His self-existence. He doesn't need anyone to depend upon. He is Jehovah. It speaks to us of the sovereign God who ruleth over all, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? It was Jehovah who was speaking these words. And that provided much needed encouragement to Moses, as it does when his people today do know their God, and they shall be strong and do exploits. Dear people, before we go any further, learn the importance of knowing God. Learn the importance of not merely having a head knowledge, but that heart experience, that walk with God. It's important that we do know God. And we know God by spending time with Him in His Word and in, his, in prayer. For the better we know God, and the greater will be our faith, and the greater will be our encouragement in those difficult and in those trying times. Encouragement is known because of the person of God. But encouragement was also known because of the power of God. And that power Moses was about to witness. You see, the moment of God's time had arrived. Look at verse 1. Then the Jehovah said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of, his land, of, of this land. Now, the tyrant, Pharaoh, had treated Israel badly. He was now going to know the power of God displayed against him. The intervention of God was about to begin. Following his refusal to the reasonable request to allow Israel to go and worship their God, Moses would begin to see the signs and the wonders of God being displayed. And although it wouldn't happen right away, yet it would compensate for the lack of deliverance of God's people up until this time. 
God was answering that charge, if you like, that we considered last time in the last verse of chapter 5. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. And God comes back to Moses and he says, Now, now you're going to see it. Now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And dear people, our hearts can be greatly encouraged in the thought of God's timing. The moment of God's power been demonstrated is often when the enemy seems to be in the ascendancy and at the zenith of their strength. The moment of God's power is when from the natural viewpoint we are at our weakest and we look the least likely to overcome the enemy. God often waits until things are at their worst before he steps in. And when he does so, then there's ample opportunity to see how great his power really is. Moses, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. The magnitude of God's power would be unmatched. Oh, Pharaoh may have considered himself to be a mighty man, a powerful man, a man of great power, but he would not have any answer for God's power. He would be rendered, rendered helpless by the power of God. He would be laid low and he would be forced to do what God desired. He also uh, would be the, the one who would uh, send Israel out. I want you to see this. He wouldn't be able to prevent Israel from leading Egypt. You see verse 1. Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And the strong hand is God's hand. Don't read it wrongly. And God's power will be such that in the end, Pharaoh would end up urging the nation to go out. To do that which he fought against them had been allowed to do. He didn't want them to leave. But he would be urging them to go out and to leave Egypt. And wasn't that proven to be the case? We'll jump forward just to give it to you. Chapter 12 of Exodus. Look at verse 30. And says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there's not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. Pharaoh's doing that which was against his very nature. He didn't want to let Israel go. Now he's urging them to go. Why? Because the power of God demonstrated against him. He orders the Israelites to leave. He drives them out of Egypt because of the power of God that he felt against them. How great is the power of God. It can cause the enemy to do the very thing it opposes. It causes Haman to show honor unto the very man that he hated in Mordecai. It causes God's power, that is, makes the wrath of man to praise him. Let's not limit the power of God. And as we consider these verses, that power of God can be noted both from the past as well as for the present and for the future. Concerning the past, look at verse 4 and 5. You'll see three times over. And I have. That's a tense. 
in the past. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. There's three things in the past. Past tense. I have established my covenant. I've heard the groaning. I've remembered my covenant. Does that not speak to us, men and women, of a God who cares? Of a God who has compassion for his people. The covenant or the promise that he had made with Abram, he hadn't forgotten. And he would bring it to pass because it stated not only that the nation of Israel would be greatly multiplied, but it also stated that they would be brought out after a period of time. They would be brought out to their own land. Only the power of God could accomplish that. It didn't matter how strong the opposition of Pharaoh would be. Leaving Egypt for Israel was not just some pipe dream. It was part of God's covenant. And it would come to pass. And God is committed to fulfilling every part of his covenant, every part of his promise. Even though the period of 400 years has now passed, It had not caused God to forget that covenant. Indeed, we might say this, the forgetting is often in the part of God's people. As was the case with Israel. I just want to read Psalm 106. The words of verse 13, it says this, They soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel. Verse 21 They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. Those are words that that sum up what Israel did. Even though they had seen the power of God, yet there was the time coming Israel forget their God. Is that not the same with us today? Is it not the same with the church collectively? That often we forget what the Lord has done. The forgetting is not in God's part. The forgetting is on man's part. Has the Lord made a covenant with his people? Yes, he has. It's called the covenant of grace. And as with any covenant in the Old Testament, it was ratified also by blood. You remember how God met with Abram and gave him that covenant and there was the parting of the animals and God walked between them. And the blood was shed. But men and women... The covenant of grace has been ratified by the blood, not of animals, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord will not forget it. And so when you find yourself in the midst of a trial, or in the midst of a difficulty, or in the midst of some trouble, the covenant-keeping God knows all about it. And he's able to meet you, you as an individual, one of his children. He's able to meet you at the point of your need. You can count on your God, for as he has promised, so he will fulfill. He'll bring it to pass. God's covenant will not be forgotten. Ratified by the blood of his dear son at Calvary. Concerning the future, there are seven promises for the encouragement of Moses and for our encouragement. 
The Lord would bring these things to pass. Each of them is marked by the words, I will. Verse 6, 7, 8. I'm going to come back to that just in a moment of time. What the power of God was in the past was the same power that was guaranteed for the future. And our God hasn't changed. We often pray, Lord, revive us again. We're not praying something silly. God has done that in the past uh, through our nation and in this little province. And His power that was demonstrated, whether it was in Ulster in 1859 or in East uh, Norwich and all around there, or whether in the, the Isles of Scotland in later days, later years, His power is still the same for the future. What encouragement. But what lies in between the past and the future is the present. And that is why the Lord says four times over, I am the Lord. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. And so what the Lord is saying afresh to our hearts is this. That if you can't reckon with the past, and you have difficulty seeing into the future, you can trust me right now in the present, for God is still the great I am. That's present. I am. You see, we've looked at three things in the past. I have, I have, I have. We're going to consider in a wee moment or time the things of the future. I will. But four times over, he says, I am the Lord. I'm present. Present tense. Indeed, these promises are sandwiched in between identical statements. Verse 6, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And we're going to look at these in a moment. Look at verse 8, the end of it. And I will give it unto you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Sandwiched in between. Only Jehovah could make such promises. And only Jehovah God could bring them to pass. And if you take a closer look at these promises for the future, as I have referenced to you that I'm coming back to, they speak of the deliverance of Israel from their bondage. And you can just picture Moses and he, the Lord's meeting with him and he's giving him this encouragement. Moses, you're going to see my power. You're going to see what I'm going to do against Pharaoh. Moses, remember that I am. I am, I am Jehovah. I am the Lord. I'm the present. Moses, here's the message I want you to give to the people for the future. Here's the promises. And men and women, when we look, and as we look for a time now at these three verses, six, seven, eight, I want you to see not only, not only there the deliverance of Israel from bondage, but therein is a greater picture of the redemptive work of Christ for the souls of his people. We don't have to go to the New Testament to see Christ and the redemption of his people from their bondage of sin. It's portrayed clearly for us in the Old Testament, none more so than in this deliverance of Israel. What are the promises that we have in salvation? 
What are the promises that Israel were given here? Let's look at them. Verse 6, first of all, it is of rest. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The curse of sin doesn't give any rest for the soul. We have that little verse in Isaiah 57. In verse 20. And it says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, in case you would maybe overlook what that word wicked means, it simply means unsaved. You're unsaved in the meeting. You can put yourself in there. The unsaved are like a troubled sea. They don't have any rest. There's no peace, saith my God, to the unsaved. But the great deliverer Christ himself is the one who can give you rest. For you know Matthew 11 and 28. Come unto me, all yet labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the sinner comes to Christ. The great burden, the great load of sin is removed. And rest instead is given. And the promise to the children of Israel was that they would be brought out from their burdens. The burdens that the old Egyptians had laid upon them. And they would be brought out and they would know rest. Then you'll notice also there's the promise of a rescue. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage. The word rid there means to pluck out of the hands of the oppressor. It means to give liberty to that which was bound. And Israel were going to be rescued from their slavery. And so is the sinner in salvation. For Christ came from heaven's glory down to this earth on a rescue mission. To rescue those who are perishing and those who are lost in sin. He came to rescue. We who had fallen in Adam's transgression. Then there's another promise in verse 6. And it's of redemption. For he says, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Redemption, one of the meanings at least, means to purchase. And so a price is paid by another. Egypt would pay the price of Israel's deliverance in terms of the plagues that would come upon the land, in terms of the riches that they would give to the Israelites when they left. And Christ Jesus is the one who's paid redemption's price for the sinner. In giving his life on the cross, for he paid it all. 
How would Israel be redeemed? It would be by the power of God. It would be by that stretched out arm. And the redemption of the sinner is likewise. It also requires the power of God. And the gospel, the apostle Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It takes the power of God to redeem you, dear loved one, out of the slave market of sin, out of the prison house, and to bring you on to Christ. And note that before Israel would be redeemed, then judgment had to take place upon the evil, because that's what the last part of verse 6 says, and with great judgments. Great judgments were going to come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so it is in salvation. The judgment of God must fall upon sin. God is a holy God. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He he is a holy God that cannot look upon iniquity. And the judgment of God must fall. But instead of falling upon the sinner, it fell upon Christ at Calvary. The cross was necessary. Because it was the place where judgment came in order for salvation to become a reality. Amen, a woman, it's all there. What Christ has wrought and how he has purchased eternal salvation for all who will come to him by faith. It's all there. And the promises go on. Because you look into verse 7, the promise was to be received. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. Despised, enslaved, yet Israel were going to be received by God as his people. And that can only speak of God's grace. Because you remember that for these 400 years, Israel had forgotten their God. Israel had turned to the old idols and gods of the Egyptians. They had drifted away. And yet God in mercy would bring them back to himself. And that too is what God does in salvation for the sinner. Because we who once were afar off have been made nigh by the precious blood of Christ. We do not deserve to be redeemed. We're unworthy as Israel was. Yet in Christ we have acceptance. And we have been reconciled to God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, And you, Paul writing to the believers of course in the church here, And you, that were sometime alienated enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. You're now at peace with God. And one day the Lord has promised that we will be received, not merely unto himself in salvation, but into heaven itself. For he has said, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's the encouragement. And there's the promise of recognition. Verse 7, I will take you to me for a people, I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. They would know God in a greater manner through their deliverance. 
In the wilderness, they would learn more about God by the means of the tabernacle, by the means of the sacrifices, the commandments that would be given at Sinai, and all the precepts that God would teach them. They would know more of God. Is not the same true when the sinner is redeemed? Our understanding which was darkened is illuminated by the Spirit as the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God shines abroad in our hearts. And we begin as children and we feed on the milk but we've got to get on to the meat and there's that growing and there's that progression as a child of God, as a servant of Christ. And the promises of the prospect of being relocated. Look at verse 8. And I will bring you in onto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Israel were not going to be moved to a different part of Egypt. It was a new land. The land of Canaan. The promised land. As God in his covenant had said to Abram those 400 years beforehand. And so it is in salvation. The Lord, you know, doesn't promise us a better part of earth. That's what the old JWs, that's what the old Russellites will try and tell you at the doorstep. There's earth, a lovely place and all of that. And they'll be, they'll be in earth. Well, all the best to them, I'll be in heaven. The Lord doesn't give us a better place on earth. He gives us the heavenly land. For the Lord said in John 14, And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Remember what I said right at the start. He's a covenant-keeping God. He'll not break his promise. Can you look to that mansion in the glory? Can you look to your name above the door? What's more, he's leading his people there. That just as he would with this people of Israel. You see the words of verse 8. And I will bring you into the land. He was going before them. He would guide them. And show them the way, all the way through that dry, that dusty, that barren wilderness. And so the assurance child of God, redeemed by precious blood is, that the one who has saved you is also the one who is guiding you through the pathways of life, by the means of his word and by his spirit, until we reach that eternal shore. We've made our way through these promises. We've come to the seventh one now. Verse, seven, verse 8 again. And it says, And I will give it you for an heritage. I am Jehovah. I will give it to you for an heritage. There is the promise of the riches. Israel didn't possess Egypt, but things were going to be different in Canaan. They would possess that good land. They would have vineyards that they didn't plant. They would have olive trees that they didn't sow. They would possess it, that land that flowed with milk and honey. And when the Lord redeems his people, they have a possession. We have an inheritance. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
and we have that inheritance which is incorruptible, which is unfeeling. It fadeth not away, and it's reserved for us. I'll read the exact words in 1 Peter 1 and 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Are these things an encouragement to you this morning? Maybe you're in a tough place. Maybe you're, you know the trials of this life's pathway and you need the encouragement. And here's, here it is, men and women, what the Lord has done for you in salvation. You see, you can only know these, you can only enjoy these encouragements if you've been redeemed, if you're saved. So we have the encouragement. I want you to notice, however, the, the discouragement. Or the disappointment, I should say. And our time is really gone, but I want to just touch this on this. It cannot be denied that Moses found great encouragement in getting before God in prayer. The Lord gave him the word that he needed. It was an encouragement to persevere. Keep on going, Moses. Even though things don't look so well. Even though things didn't go so well before Pharaoh. And it's with that encouragement that Moses duly obeys what the Lord wanted him to do. What did the Lord want him to do? Did you see it in verse 6? He says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel. Moses Go back to the children of Israel. Give them this message. And that's what you have in verse 9. And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel. The smallest word, however, in that sentence in verse 9 is the greatest significance. And Moses spake so. So. There's the rehearsing of the message. That little word so tells us that Moses told the children of Israel exactly, exactly the message that God had just told him. He spoke what God had spoken to him. And all of what we have taken time to consider, the person of God, the power of God, these promises for the future, he didn't go to the people empty-handed. He had a message from the Lord. And Moses was to rehearse it. And remember, this was what God had commanded them to do, even though he had, they had heard it before. Moses had given the message to the children of Israel. Moses stood before Pharaoh. He had rejected the message. But that hadn't changed the message. It was exactly the same as at the beginning. And I labor this because, you see, men and women, it doesn't make any difference whether or not people will receive the message or not. Oh, we pray that you do. But there are many who don't receive the message of the gospel. But listen to me, it'll not make any difference to God because God, what he has decreed, he will do. Whether people receive it or not. It'll make a difference, of course, to them. And that little word so declares that Moses was faithful in declaring God's truth. He didn't water it down. 
He didn't alter it for the occasion of the congregation before him. That's what many a preacher these days does in pulpits, and I've heard them in, in funeral service, and they'll tone it down or they'll ramp it up a bit knowing who's there. He told it just as it was. And dear people, let's apply that to our own selves, our own hearts. Let's endeavor to do the same. Whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the Sunday school, the children's meeting, whether it's in the holiday Bible school or the youth fellowship or in this pulpit, we tell it as it is. It may be not always be popular. It may be not always be what people want to hear. But we must be faithful in declaring what God has said. And you know, I take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 just to give you an illustration. The last verse. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and he says in the last verse of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And you see that little word corrupt? It brings us really into the marketplace. And what they were prone to do in those days in, in the selling of their wares, particularly that which had to do with the wine or, the, or, or, or of the liquid nature, they watered it down. And it's not, nothing's different today. Of course, they do the same. Uh, and people are starting to think they've watered the petrol down. doesn't take you as far. But that's what that word means. They water it down. In other words, they water it down so it'll go further and they get more profit, they get more gain. And Paul says, I'm not like others. I'm not like them in the marketplace. But as of sincerity, as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ or of Christ, as the margin says there. Having rehearsed the message, sadly the disappointment is noted in the response of those who heard it, because verse 9 says, And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, just as the Lord had said, But they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. Israel were the unique people of God. There was much in store for them as the message reminded them from being slaves and bond servants. For them, there was the prospect of being set free. Yet they showed a disinterest. They didn't care. What encouraged Moses should also have encouraged Israel. But they weren't interested. And we see the reason why. The problem, you see, was the heart. They were experiencing anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. In other words, they had allowed their troubles to dominate so that they paid no attention to what God's message was. It is the same not often the case with us, if we're honest. And we allow other things to dominate, and we miss God's word that will encourage. A.W. Pink said this, we defeat ourselves by being occupied with the difficulties of the way. Dear people, whether young or older, let us be discerning of the tactics of the devil that would seek to heap trouble upon us in order to divert our attention away from God and his word. Because that's what the order and the command of Pharaoh had succeeded in doing to Israel. 
The people's burdens had increased. They got heavier. And yet when the Lord came with a message through his servant to encourage and to uplift them, they missed it. It says they didn't hearken unto Moses. Dear soul, don't miss out on the message that the Lord has for you. Be sensitive to his speaking voice to your soul, for there is none that can encourage or revive as the Lord can. And listen, we, all, we thank God for the encouragers. I trust that, that as your pastor I can encourage you. And do be times. And I thank God for others that encourage me. There's always the Barnabases. But there's none that can encourage or revive or uplift like the Savior. Isn't it a good job that the divine purposes of God aren't thwarted by the unbelief or the disinterest of God's people? We haven't time this morning, but we'll see that the next time because the Lord gives them a charge in verse 13. You know, I want to close with this. The Lord gives a charge to the sinner this morning. Come and be saved. Be ye reconciled. He can redeem your sin-sick soul. Now, this moment can be the moment of God's power in your life. For God is still the same. That is, if you will repent of your sin and turn by faith to Him. I pray that you will. The Lord bless His word to each of our hearts this morning. For his own name's sake.